last year, a lot of people moving out of the cities, especially here in California, but this was like a national phenomenon. People were buying homes like crazy. And this is the interesting thing. The government thinks that we are stupid, but you don't need a degree of economics. Anyone that has a job, anyone that has a checkbook, anyone that has a credit card can feel this, even without having a degree in economics. People could feel like uh, at the beginning of, at the end of last year, that those low rates were not going to be there forever. They could feel what was anticipating. So anyone that could put a deposit by home did it. And that's why real estate boomed like crazy, you see? And that was the right thing to do because money, as it becomes more and less and less worth it, you need to put it into objects and you need to put it into objects as quickly as you can. Because what happens is this, the government creates money. When they spend it first, they get the full value. But as it trickles down the line and it comes to us, by the time it comes to us, it doesn't have that value anymore. So we better use it to something that can be effective. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. Alejandro, welcome to the show. Thank you, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. And thank you so much for giving me a voice to your audience. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? Pistachio. Pistachio? Okay. Yes. Okay. Now, you are originally from Chile, and I like to try different desserts whenever I travel abroad. If I go to Chile, which is on my list, where should I go? Like, do you have any native desserts that are out there beyond ice cream? Yes, the native dessert in Chile and in Argentina as well is called flan, F-L-A-N. Flan is quite a dessert. It's really simple, but it's very difficult to actually get it right. And when you get it right, it's as addictive as ice cream or even worse. So if you ever visit Chile or Argentina, ask for flan. You're talking my language. What is it? It sounds like a baked uh, dough type of dessert. It's jelly plus cream plus something else that I don't remember right now mixed in a certain way. And that is the trick. It's like when you make mayonnaise, you know, when you make mayonnaise by hand, if you don't stir it correctly, it goes bad right away, right? This flan thing is similar. It uses simple ingredients like jelly, cream, and something else. But if you don't get it right, it's like horrible. But when yeah. you get it right, it's divine. Perfect. Well, chili is on my list here in the next two or three years. So I'm going to be on search for it. Okay. So tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? I am a mortgage broker. I have like a boutique mortgage brokerage for the self-employed and for the artists. And you may think, well, the artists, self-employed, they seem different. But when you go to a lender, from the point of view of the lender, he would put the self-employed person or the self-employed entrepreneur and the artist in the same boat. To him, they are people that are complicated to, to give a loan to or to finance. And to him, to the lender, there are people that he needs to invest a lot of time in getting them qualified. And those are things that, believe it or not, lenders don't like to do. So that is my specialty because I'm one of those people and I had so many problems through the years in my business journey and things that don't make any sense that I decided to actually become one of those people that help my brethren, you may say, you know, get loans. So that's what I do. 
I like it. I'm super excited to have you on the show because part of my journey is I scaled my single family portfolio to 10 units. And after 10 units, Fannie and Freddie don't like you anymore. You'd fall out of their box. So I started looking for these creative options. So I want to get into that. But before we do, you are a man that has a very interesting journey from Australia to New Zealand to the UK. Can you tell us how did you end up at Mortgage Broker? Like where'd your real estate journey begin? Actually, my real estate journey began on the actual economy, trying to find out where money came from, trying to find out why this thing called interest rate. I come from Chile and in Chile, especially at the time that I was growing up, it was a very dynamic country. You could see on the headlines on the newspaper pretty much every day, the cost of living index is blah, interest rate is blah. And those headlines always perplexed me because I thought, wow, this interest rate thing must be very important. This cost of living index in inflation, what we call inflation or cost of living, must be super important. It's every day on the newspaper. And then I remember when I came to the US in the 1990s, I was flabbergasted and nobody knew what a cost of living index was. While in Chile, I saw it on the newspaper pretty much on a daily basis. So I ended up in the mortgage business trying to answer those questions for myself. And I ended up on the real estate business because in where I live, which is Southern California, in order to be able to become a mortgage broker, at the time that I applied for a license back in the early 2000s, you had to have a real estate license. There was not a mortgage license independent of a real estate license. So I had to go through the whole course and I kept saying to my instructors, why do I need this? I'm never going to do real estate. I just want to do loans. He says, well, if you want to do loans, you have to do this. So I became realtor, I became a real estate agent, and I started working on loans. And then because I speak Spanish, you know, I'm from Chile, my broker, this is way back in the early 2000s, says, you speak Spanish, right? And he says, yes, I do. I said, would you like to make double commission? And I said, how come? I said, go and help those people. You have a real estate license, you'll do a loan, but you'll do the real estate side as well, meaning helping them not just on the loan, but helping them with the paperwork, the pricing, making the offers, doing all of the disclosures and so on. And then you'll make double commission. And then the problem was that when I did that, I really loved the real estate side. I didn't know it was so much fun. So for many years, I became a realtor. So I did luxury properties. I did commercial. I did loans. Then this is how I met my mentor on the west side of Los Angeles. And I shifted from the residential world into the commercial world. I was the slave of my mentor for like 10 years. I did everything he asked me. And that's how I really, really, really learned about the law, about the commercial real estate law. Although I'm not a lawyer, but I learned how it affects real estate per se. And I learned how to all the ins and outs of commercial real estate and how do they relate to residential. So that made me a better loan broker. That made me a better loan officer because now I have the full picture. I also work for a real estate hedge fund, which raised capital in order to invest in real estate projects. And I did that for a little bit. So after all of that, now I had the full picture, not just the loan, but the real estate, capital raising, the law behind it, and that made me a much better broker with a lot more experience. And this is why, you know, when I have a borrower now in front of me, whether it be a successful artist, and you cannot imagine successful artists that make money, that are solvent, they have the same problems, pretty much the same problems that a first-time home buyer would have when they apply for a loan. Or you, that you have already like 10 investment properties, they have the same problems. But now, 
I just need to listen to someone for 30 minutes and I immediately, my mind immediately wraps around the problem and I can immediately see the loan they need, you know, how to do it and so on and so on. So usually when I talk to someone, unlike other mortgage brokers, I don't ask them for anything. All I say is, okay, what do you want to achieve? What is your goal? They say, well, my goal is to get a lower rate. I said, no, that's not your goal. Your goal is to probably buy a house, is to get a residence, is to buy an investment property, is to send your child to college, but it's not to get a lower rate because whether it's low or high, we don't know yet. We need to know what your goal is. So I just listen for the goal, try to understand where the person comes from, how much money they make, what is their lifestyle, because a loan is just a set of rules. And there are hundreds of those set of rules. So I would rather know the person and then just go to my toolbox and pick up the set of rules that applies to that person rather than try to fit him or her into a particular tool set, which is what happens when you go to Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and you go into the the traditional route. So I'm sorry I went a little bit on a tangent, but that's why that was my journey into real estate. When you were doing the commercial with your mentor, were you representing both the realty side, realtor side, and the mortgage side as well? Or were you just doing the real estate side? I was doing the real estate side because in that case, you had complicated transactions that involved 1031 exchanges. And usually what happens is this, usually, and it's one of your questions, you know, what is the biggest barrier that I have encountered? And the bigger barriers is human emotional reactions. And I'm not Mm -hmm. talking about the nice reactions, like, I love you, you're great. I'm talking about the bad ones. You know, I'm going to sue you, you're bad. Those are reactions because I saw and I've seen And even in myself, that's why me, myself, I don't do my own real estate deals because of this reason. You become so emotionally involved that that interferes. It's not about the numbers. You will be surprised. Like on a commercial transaction, you will think it's about the numbers. You will think it's about the rate of return. And it's not that. It's about the ego. It's about the emotional thing. It's about you told me this and now it's that. So that becomes so involved that by trying to be the listing agent or sometimes the buyer's agent, trying to put everyone together to agree on the deal, that pretty much percent of my time, didn't have the time to do the lending side as well. Yeah, I feel like you're being my psychiatrist right now because I'm buying a personal home that's getting built right now. And it's exactly that. Like, hey, I do real estate. I understand what's going on in this transaction. You don't need this. You do need this. Why are you saying this? Because I know it's not true, but you're telling me it's true. And now all of a sudden I'm upset because it's not true. And I told you, Like, so ego is definitely a thing, I would say. I know. And even with my mentor, my mentor had a $4 million building. That was his building. He wanted to save money and not pay me or not pay anyone else, by the way, not just me. He tried to sell it. He couldn't. His wife came to me and he says, Alejandro, could you please sell our building? And I said, no problem. And I did sell it. But at the time, he was, and still is, by the way, he was a 35 plus years experienced real estate investor, broker and long guy, and he couldn't sell his own building. That tells mm-hmm. you how involved and how emotional this business really is. Yep, yep. So I wanna now shift this to the mortgage side. So you've mentioned it a couple of times that artists, self-employed, entrepreneurs have difficult times getting loans. So let's start this conversation with, most of our listeners are probably very familiar with the traditional home buying experience, but not understand the back-end process. So in the traditional home buying experience, you have a W-2. Can you walk us through like, what does that look like? And then we'll go into some of the challenges that an entrepreneur would have. Yes. This, in my opinion, doesn't apply anymore, but it's still the same way. So many years ago, the lending industry realized that most uh, uh, home buyers had a certain profile. They were employed, therefore they got a W-2, and they had a certain income bracket. So 
they created a system to automatically give them a loan. When I say automatically, it's automatically in brackets. If you're watching a video, you see my fingers going like this because it's in brackets. Because even though you use a lot of computers and you use a lot of forms, it takes between 10 to 15 people to process one W-2 loan employee. So lenders, in order to save money, they have narrowly defined what each employee can do. Most of these employees, I'm talking about employees of the lender, not the employee that is applying for the loan. Mm -hmm. So most of the people that work for a lender have a very narrow set of functions. They usually don't talk to each other very well. They usually don't want to talk to you on the phone because in order to save costs, they have to process many loans per day. So they have to do it via email or via text. The problem is in the world of lending, there are a lot of abbreviations and acronyms. Not everyone understands the same acronyms. You also see that the level of language of people is decreasing as schools don't do a good job. I mean, this is interesting because I'm talking about to you about things that have nothing to do with lending, but these things that have nothing to do with lending are impacting lending. So as the literacy level of people declines, as they are forced into this type of jobs that they cannot look aside to see what the other guy is doing. They only have to do a specific thing. As they only have to do texting for things that sometimes they don't understand, they can barely do a W-2 employee person that applies for a loan. If this loan has anything out of the ordinary, let's say the person has a little bit of a, a side job on the side, the person has maybe a trivial credit report issue that, that could be solved in a couple of weeks. The person, for some reason or other, doesn't exactly fit into the box the team of people cannot handle that. And basically that person gets rejected. Yeah, and I think to kind of summarize too, when I, traditional W-2 employee, walk into Bank of America, Wells Fargo, JP Morgan, all these big institutions out there, and I go get a loan, what they're ultimately doing is making sure they're using their system, their people to make sure that you fit in this box. Because yes. once you sign that loan, what they do is they sell it to Fannie and Freddie or give it to Fannie and Freddie that it's back and go sell it on the open market to someone else. Yes. So I have struggled in this process because I have W-2 income, a number of different rental incomes coming in. I have portfolios out there and my DTI ratios look weird. But when you see that they're backed by rental income, they're actually not weird. So you have come in to help solve the problem of you fall outside of this box. So from an entrepreneur standpoint, why is their situation different? Because of two reasons. One reason is their credit score that we can talk about that, you know, soon. And the other reason is because it takes time. You have to have someone willing to sit down, willing to look at all of your finances and how they are put together. You were mentioning rental income. Well, you need to look at the tax return. You need to look at, but not just at the tax return. You need to look at the amount of depreciation. You need to put that away because that's not a real expense. It's only for tax purposes. You need to look at really how many days in the year you're renting. You need to start putting time. If you put the time, you will understand this person's financial situation. However, lenders usually don't have, they don't pay much to their employees. So number one, they cannot afford to put in the time. And sometimes they don't have to, the expertise to understand a financial situation that goes beyond just the W-2 income. Yes, the W-2 income can be seen, you get the form, but if you have a 200-page tax return, you know, some of our clients have a 200-page tax return, they are not equipped to look at that and understand it. That's when you use tax returns. Tax returns is one of the seven forms to qualify people. You can also use bank statements, but in bank statements, it becomes a little trickier. So it's the amount of time and it's the amount of expertise that traditional lenders are not equipped and they don't have the personnel to do this because they make more money 
just doing the simple W-2 loans. That's really what it boils down to. That's it. I think there's where, going back to my JP Morgan Bank of America situation, they are making a transaction fee for putting it all together and packaging it up. And the more of those they can do, the better. So what they want is a nice, clean borrower that they can just push through the system fast. And you mentioned depreciation. An entrepreneur in real estate, for instance, might receive $200,000 of income from rental income last year on their tax return, but show $0 of income. The reason being depreciation. They're writing exactly. all of that off. One of the benefits of real estate and why we love real estate is because you can pay little to no taxes on real estate. However, now it looks like you have zero income coming in. You don't fit that box. You mentioned credit score out there and we were chatting beforehand. Credit score is one of those things that everybody in America has one, but they might not know what their credit score is or what the factors are that go into it. You've referenced several times, Seven Ways to 720, a book that really influenced your career. Can you talk us through like, what is a credit score? What are the factors that go into it? Yes. I'm going to tell you, first of all, the theoretical that you can read on a website and then what I found out to be the practice. So, but let me start by saying that this very enterprising loan officer called Philip Tyrone put together in the early 2000s, this system called Seven Steps to 720. By the way, I have no affiliation with him. He's not paying me to say this. He sells these things on eBay. I mean, not him. These things, you can buy them on eBay for 20 or $30. If you find one like I did, I'm showing it on the screen right now, buy it. Like I said, I'm not making any money. I'm not trying to plug, plug him in. He has another way now. If you go to his website, he does this online. But in my opinion, the older CDs that you can buy, six CDs, 40 minutes each, I hope he's not listening, are a lot better than when he did online. He's a great guy. I have spoken to him on the phone. But like I said, I'm not affiliated with him. He is the only guy, in my opinion, that if you follow his system, you will get to 720 or beyond. Because this is what happens. The first thing I heard when I came to the U.S. about the credit score, is said, oh, don't worry, just pay your bill some time and you'll have a great credit. And I thought, well, that's easy, but it's not true. You can pay all your bills on time and never even have a credit score. So the first thing you need to understand is that the bills that you need to pay are the institutional lenders' bills. They don't really care about your bills. They care only about the institutional lender bills. That means credit cards, that means installment loans, and that means mortgages. That's what they are talking about paying on time. But paying on time is just only a small part of it. What happens is this. Credit scores, most people think that credit scores are a measure of success, are a measure of how ethical you are or how good of a business person is. And that is totally, I mean, it could be that you are a successful person and so on and have high credit, but that's not why it was invented. Credit scores were invented by lenders that wanted to find out and they wanted to spot and call, if you will, the people that would make the most money with when they lend. So this is not for you or for me. This is for the lender. They want to identify those people. They will make the most money when they lend. So this is what they want. And this is totally arbitrary. This doesn't follow logic. That's the second mistake. When you go to a credit score, you may think, oh, well, if I do this, if I pay, and you will be surprised. This is what happens to all of my entrepreneur clients. They go, oh, because they have the money. No problem. I'll pay it. And I have to stop them. And I say, don't pay because paying is not the solution. And they go, but hold on a second. If I pay, isn't my credit score going to go up? And I say, not necessarily, because these people are not rewarding you for paying. They are rewarding you for debt management. Oh, but it's not just any debt management. It's debt management according to the arbitrary criteria. I'll give you an example. If they lend you a hundred bucks 
They don't want you to use more than 50. Ideally, they don't want you to use more than 10 bucks. And you go, wait a second, if they give me 100 bucks, you mean I cannot use the 100 bucks? Yes, you can. But if you use them, you will be penalized. So that doesn't make sense right there and there. If you're an entrepreneur, entrepreneurs like, I, like me and you, we live out of cash flow. You know, if we have a cash flow, it goes up, it goes down. So if we have 100 bucks, we use them, we buy something, we get a rate of return, and then we pay. If you do that, which is totally logical from an entrepreneurial point of view, it's totally bad from a credit score point of view, because from a credit score point of view, you should get 100 bucks, use 10, pay the minimum payment, and keep the 10 on as a recurring balance. That's what they want you to do. Why do they want you to do that? There is no logical reason. This is why they decided themselves it's not because it's better or ethical or moral or good or bad. It's a decision that they made and they based all their system on that. Yeah, I think to use your point of $100, if I'm an entrepreneur, I could use that $100 to buy inventory, go invest in a different property, and that $100 could turn into $500, 1000 But to the credit agency or to the credit report, it basically shows that I'm a bad debt management because I had 100 bucks and I used 100 bucks when sometimes if you do it right in entrepreneurship, using that 100 bucks to its full extent is actually good for you. Exactly. And not only that, let's switch for a second to the entrepreneurial point of view. You get 100 bucks, you use them. And let's say that the payment date comes and you go, you know what? I could pay it, but I'm better off not. I'm going to pay it a little late. I'm going to pay the fee. So the entrepreneurial person uses the 100 bucks, doesn't pay it on time, incurs a fee. He doesn't care because it's the cost of doing business. And then he pays it all off. And then he's surprised because he says, well, I paid it. They charge me a fee and I paid it. Isn't that good? I said, yep. no. No, because they're judging you, not because you paid it. They're judging you because you used it and you paid it late. <laughs> yeah. So I mentioned earlier that I'm going through this house buying process and I'm struggling with my current mortgage lender because it's the same situation. I show a bad DTI ratio, but in essence, all that debt is backed up by income that's producing more, way more than the payment. And so shameless plug, this is why I got into whole life policies is because you can actually borrow against them hidden from these credit agencies. So now all of a sudden, I've got $200,000 stuffed in these policies. I can go grab $200,000 and they don't see that, that I have $200,000 out. But if I have it from a bank, a Bank of America, a heat lock, a business line of credit, a credit card, something like that, it looks like, hey, you had $200,000, you used all of it, we're just gonna ding your credit score. Matt, you mentioned something that is so cool. And again, I could tell from the beginning of when we started doing this podcast that you're really advanced. So few people know what you said, but yes, for an entrepreneur who is under the age of 60, having a properly structured whole life policy is their best investment. But you will never find this because if you do a, a search for whole life policy, actually you will find bad advice and misinformation about it. But that's another topic. So I'm not going to go into yep. that. Yep. I try to use this example because I was talking in 2020 and 2021 about whole life policies and how I leverage them and I arbitrage the difference and all sorts of things like that. And people were saying, why would you do that? Why would you pay a guaranteed 5% interest rate when rates are 2%, 3%? And what I've been screaming ever since then is that we've gotten lazy with how easy liquidity has been in our system, how cheap, how abundant it is. And I remember some point in 2021, Wells Fargo closed all personal lines of credit, which meant that you had 30 days to pay whatever you had outstanding or it was going to look horrible on your reporting. And this is just another example of like how that affects you and another use for those whole life policies. So tangent over, exactly. I guess. Exactly. You've come from Chile, and one of the things that you experienced during those times were 
different types of inflation area environments. Here in the States, we're recording this the day of the Fed policy announcement here in December, where inflation is actually ticking down a little bit. But we've never experienced high inflation like this in my lifetime. We have in the 70s, but not in my lifetime. Can you talk us through a little bit about your experience during that time and some of the best assets or best strategies me as an individual investor listening to this show could implement knowing that we might experience high inflationary times like that again? Yes. Actually, I was born and I lived in high inflationary time. It wasn't until I came to the U.S. that I started to experience a non-inflationary time. And even though you call five or six or seven percent high inflation, I come from places where 12 percent is low. I come from a place where 20 percent, 30 or 40 percent was the norm. So six or seven percent really, even though it's high and even though it could be double or triple or what it was before, is you ain't seen nothing yet, as they say. <laughs> so this is what I saw. My father he was an entrepreneur. He owned one of the third largest clothing manufacturing companies in the country. And I could see what he did. In a highly inflationary environment, currency, you need to start, stop thinking currency as something valuable. Currency is something transitory. Like I saw factory workers got paid on a Friday and on Sunday, everything was spent. The reason being is because money more and more and more loses its value. And what becomes more important than that are the objects that you can buy. And this is why you also saw, like last year, a lot of people moving out of the cities, especially here in California. But this was like a national phenomenon. People were buying homes like crazy. And this is the interesting thing. The government thinks that we are stupid, but you don't need a degree of economics. Anyone that has a job, anyone that has a checkbook, anyone that has a credit card can feel this even without having a degree in economics. People could feel like uh, at the beginning of at the end of last year that those low rates were not going to be there forever. They could feel what was anticipating. So anyone that could put a deposit by home did it. And that's why real estate boomed like crazy. You see, and that was the right thing to do because money, as it becomes more and less and less worth it, you need to put it into objects and you need to put it into objects as quickly as you can. Because what happens is this, the government creates money. When they spend it first, they get the full value. But as it trickles down the line and it comes to us, by the time it comes to us, it doesn't have that value anymore. So we better use it to something that can be effective. Now, one of the things that I always say is that if you can buy a house, buy it. And people go, well, no, that's not an investment, blah, 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 blah. But another question that you ask on your questionnaire that I would like to address now, because I think it's pertinent to this, is that the best advice I ever got is make savings a necessary expense. In other words, force yourself to save. One of the best ways, it's a mortgage, because on a mortgage, you have to pay it between a third to half to 100% of the what you pay on a mortgage will come to you back eventually. So basically you're paying yourself. And always people tell me, no, but you are better off investing on the market. This is a bad investment. You don't get a high rate of return. But it's not about the rate of return. It's about preservation of capital. Because if $100 go through your hand and at the end of the day, you have nothing to show for it, or if $100 go through your hand and now you have 10 bucks to show for it, which way would you rather be? For most people, for most people, spending your money immediately and completely is the best way because we already do that anyhow. But when you create expenses that are really savings, you're still going to spend all your money. You're still going to have zero at the end of the month, except now you have savings. And you could argue, yes, that's inefficient, you know, because 
If you pay a $3,000 mortgage, only you're saving a thousand, you're losing 2,000, you could be better off buying this and buying that. And my answer to that would be yes, but very few people will be able to do it. And the mm -hmm. people that will be able to do it don't need it anymore because it's only when you are in affluence, it's only when you're making two or more times your expenses that you start acting, acting, not thinking, acting that way. And by that time, you really don't need it. You see what I mean? So yeah. up until you get to that point, a mortgage, a life insurance policy that uh, configured the correct way are ways to spend your money but create an automatic savings. I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah, you did. I mean, what you're basically saying is in an inflationary environment, you want to buy assets. And yes. one of the concepts that I try to tell people is you need to create friction in your life because friction creates growth. So yes. whether it's I'm a big runner, I'm a big cyclist, endurance athlete, that's my friction. It gets hard. It's tough to do, but that's how I grow. My body becomes healthier and things like that. With your money, one of the tactics that I employ is I split my direct deposit. Almost every payroll software out there will allow you to split your their direct deposit. So some of it goes into my checking and I take about 50% of it and I chop it into an online only savings account. Why online only? Because I can't go down to the online savings account in a brick and mortar and go move it, remove that money. I have to log online, move that money to my checking account, which takes two or three days, friction, point of logging in, friction point of moving the money before I can go spend it. And what I'm kind of hearing from this is you can almost do that with your mortgage as well. If you yep. buy a house and you've got money going into that, at the end of 30 years, you're going to own that house. Now, what you pay for that house is kind of irrelevant because the goal is that that house will be a, at a higher point in 30 years than it is today, which on a general thesis, I think that just about every piece of real estate will be. But creating that friction point, and I'll sum up this whole conversation with, you mentioned something about inefficiencies. I think in finance and investments and personal finance, it's a blend of math and emotion. Math will always tell you there's a more efficient way to do things, but emotion of how do I sleep better at night and is this going to put me in a better spot 30 years from now than not is a whole separate conversation. What you yes. ultimately need to do is a blend of both of those. If you are the most disciplined robotic person in the world, then by all means, go try to arbitrage every penny out of efficiency as you can. But if it makes you sleep better at night, then go pursue a more emotional comforting path. But yeah, I think what you're basically talking about is friction and a forced savings plan, which I completely agree with. Yeah, and one more thing I would add is don't go on chasing the rate of return. Every time when you hear investing, you hear rate of return, but almost never you hear capital preservation. Mm -hmm. Capital preservation should be your number one goal. Only when that is thoroughly and completely satisfied, then you can look at a rate of return. All the investments that I've seen are sold by rate of return, but they are not really investments. They are speculative moves. And there is a big difference between speculation and investment. Pretty much everything that is out there is speculation. Even when you buy stock, it's mm. speculation. Wait, and I think there's one term that immediately comes to mind as we're recording this is crypto farming. I mean, crypto farming in 2021, I felt like an idiot not buying some Bitcoin and lending it out for a 15% return, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, we've seen what has happened to that industry right now. Not to say it yeah. won't come back or whatever, but at the end of the day, right now, it's looking terrible. Just because you're a man of very much a lot of wisdom and you read a ton, things like that, from a capital preservation side, what are some of the best classes you've seen across the world, across industries as more on the safer side of capital preservation? Well, it depends on your level of income, but for most people, it's buying their own home. 
for most people would be to have a properly structured whole life policy, which is what everybody did until the 70s, until Wall Street sold everyone that that was the dumb thing to do. For most people, it will be to invest in their business or in their profession. Let's say if you are a computer programmer and you can take another course, or you can buy another book or you can get another certification or you can get trained on a new system. For me as a real estate professional, I constantly am looking at upping my game and investing in my business. Investing in your business, whatever that business may be, and the home and the whole life policy is really, really for most people, the most successful strategy. The most successful strategy. Now, somebody yeah, may say, well, you can buy silver, you can go buy gold. Yeah, you can do that too. But, yeah. but really, for most people, it will be buy your own home, invest in your activity, profession, or business. Yep. I love that you said that. I mean, it's basically investing in yourself. You're preserving your skill set, growing your skill set, which will help you preserve your capital and provide almost infinite ROI. Yeah, at the yeah because the I'm writing a book. It's called Money. And in that, I try to answer the question that I had when I was seven. How is money created? And this is what it is. Money is a cycle. It's created when you add value, but it's not just any value. It's value that the community wants. And it's a will. I call it the will of wealth. Now, some people may say, well, yeah, but like you were mentioning, I bought these Bitcoins for 200 bucks. I sold them where they were 60,000. Now I have $5 million sitting on my bank account. Yeah, you can do that. But this is what is promoted. But very few people can do that. And that's not the way to create value. And I'm not disparaging those people because you need speculators. The speculators are the people that clean up the mess when everything implodes. Because when everything implodes and values are at the bottom, you need someone with guts to come and buy it when nobody wants to buy it. So there is a place for speculators, but speculators are the cleaners, are the people where you see on those gangster movies when there is a mess and then they send the cleaners to clean the crime scene. That's what speculators do. But it takes a very special kind of person and it takes a very special kind of nerve. I don't have it. I'm not a speculator. But of all my clients, I don't have anyone that is a successful speculator. So I'm not trying to disparage speculators, but I'm saying that don't take the exception as the rule. Yeah. Speculator is a very precise economic function that only very few people can do. And kudos to them. I mean, it's great that they can do that. For most people, don't even think about going that way unless you are predisposed and you're one of those people that have those very special character to be a successful speculator. For most people, you want to have the wheel of wealth. The wheel of wealth means you contribute to your community, you get a little bit of value, you don't spend it all, you save a little, you do it again. You contribute more value, you invest in yourself so you can deliver more, you deliver more. And as you do this over and over and over and over, some people say it takes 10,000 hours of doing it before you become successful. I don't know if it's true, but for me it was true. It takes a few years and there is no escaping. You can try to shortcut it. You can try to become speculator. You can try to buy the Bitcoin, you know, sell, buy the gold at $20, selling for, sell it for 2000 And what is going to happen, what I've seen happen with me, because I've done this, by the way, and I failed, but not just me. What I've seen is that you do all of this, you spend all your energy, you spend all your money trying to do this. And after a few years, you go, blasted. I'm just going to do it the quote unquote, old fashioned way. Had you done it the old fashioned way from the very beginning, you would have enough money to speculate. You know, my yeah. grandfather, he was, because he, the, my father and my grandfather had this business. My grandfather was very wealthy. Once a year, he went to the biggest casino by the ocean that we had, and he just blew money. And one day I asked, I said, grandfather, why do you do that? He said, because you know what, grandson, when I go to the casino, I know I'm going to lose my ass, but I have fun. I only mm -hmm. do it once a year and I only do it with my own money. I don't do it with the company money. And if I win, I'm happy. But that, that almost never happens. That's what he told me. 
Yes, that's someone I wanted to tell you. Yeah, he's at the point to where he can do that too. Exactly. He's at the point yeah. where you can do that. So if you apply the wheel of wealth and now you're wealthy or now you have resources and you want to blow them on buying the Bitcoin or whatever, do it. But do it for fun. Don't do it because you're expecting to make any money out of it. And if you do make money, Jesus, go and celebrate with your wife. Buy a bottle of champagne. Go to Italy. I don't know. But that's my approach to it. You, we're going to have you back on the show and we're going to do a whole hour on what is money because okay. what you were talking about there, I've got some thoughts on and I'm marking this on the internet right now that that's my life goal is to write a book that's like, what is money and talk about it, whether it's just in the US. So people got has some understanding of US fiat and currency and things like that, or if it's across the globe, that's one of my goals too. So we're going to have you back on when that releases. I want to shift you to our last round. We're calling this the five toppings. Our first okay. one is, what is your favorite book or what is a book you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? I've read many books. I read about 400 books, according to my wife, because she had to collect all the ones that were like thrown around the house. But the one that comes to mind is called The First 5,000 Years of Debt by David Graber. This guy is crazy. He went 5,000 years into the past to explore the nature of money and the nature of debt. And he walks you through from the Sumerian times, which is the earliest civilization known to man until today. Well, until today, until 2010, which is when he wrote the book. So that's one of my favorite books. I like it. I think I heard that on a podcast one time, but I don't think I've ever read it. Okay. It's really right. thick. It's like 500 pages, but worth every single page. Got it. Got it. Our second one is, I believe that the person you become 10 years from now is correlated to the habits that you have and the things you do every day. What are some of the habits that you have every day? Well... I always read, I spend about two hours reading. Over 40 years now, I have a few people that I follow. So I spend like one to two hours every day reading about the economic forecast, but not na nationwide only, internationally, because we are all connected. What happens in another country? And this has always been the case since the Roman times, by the way, not only because we have globalization and computers, that is the case. It's always been the case. So I do that every day. Every day that has nothing to do with mortgages, have nothing to do with interest rates. I just want to have a sense of what is going on in the world and how that affects us. Yeah, I like that you said it's been that way because most people don't know the reason why we got bombed during Pearl Harbor is because we cut off Japan's oil supplies. So basically they were on a ticking time bomb of the amount of oil they were going to have and it was attack America and take on the big bad boy and the beast or run out of oil and not be able to fight their actual enemies. So, so like very few it. people know that, Matt. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Our third one is, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? I think you noted it earlier, but just to repeat it. Yes. Transform your savings into necessary expenses and go for capital preservation. When I used to raise money for this hedge fund, I always told people that work with me, an investor only has two questions and they go in sequence. If you don't get a full answer to the first, you'll never get to the second. And the two questions any investor has is, if I give you this money, will I get it back? And until he, until that question is satisfied, nothing else matters. That's very important. And the question number two, okay, now that I'm convinced that I'm going to get it back, how much more am I going to get? You see, most investors are sold by number two and never by number one. But all professional investors will never go to number two without number one. So the best piece of advice is capital preservation. What is your strategy for capital preservation? How I am sure that I'm going to get my money back. Only then I'm going to listen to your spiel about how much more I'm going to get. Yep. Yep. Our fourth one is, what is the thing that you're most proud of in your life? I 
saw the potential in me when I was very young, but I had all these doubts and internal issues. What I'm most proud in my life is I found a way to deal and get rid of all of that. So I could do what I really needed to do. And that has allowed me to serve others in a much better way. So just to make it short, I'm proud that I was able to overcome all those personal issues. When we hang up and adjourn here, I'm going to ask you about that. Because okay. I feel like you're burying the lead. That's probably the best part of the interview, but I'll keep it to myself. Okay. Our fifth one is, if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be and why? There would be a long line of people that I would like to talk to, but one of them would be Martin Armstrong. Martin Armstrong is a former hedge fund manager. He's one of the economists that I follow. And really, I feel that I resonate with everything he says so much that I would love one day just to spend a couple of minutes over a cup of coffee, assuming he drinks coffee. I don't know if he does. Just to shake his hand and say, Marty, very pleased to meet you. Thank you for everything you, that you're doing. Nice. Alejandro, this has been a fantastic conversation from how you help people and clients today in the mortgage business to overall economic conditions and practical advice we could give to investors. If our listeners wanted to reach out to you and learn more about the services you offer or just have that cup of coffee and free ice cream, where is the best way so we could point them? The best way, go to my website, which is www.prosperity, like something prosperous, prosperitylending.us, or send me an email at info at prosperitylending.us. That's the best way. Perfect. We will link those in the show notes. And then, Alejandro, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.